grace and peace to you in the name of Jesus, friends. Amen. This conversation we read earlier, Matthew chapter 21, 23 to 32, it takes place on Tuesday of Holy Week. Some scholars of the Bible have pegged the date as March 30 in the year 3380. There's differences of opinion as to exactly what year in history Jesus died, which honestly is not all that uncommon in dealing with history when it's so far in the past. The question historians then ask, right, isn't, well, did this event actually take place? It's precisely when did this event take place? Not whether, but when. So whenever exactly it happened, Jesus is three days from hanging on his cross here. And over those last few days of his life, before the cross, we see in Jesus' words, in his actions, in the the, the things that he focuses on, that he's concerned for the church and her preaching and teaching. Let me explain what I mean by church there. We often think of church as a building. Usually I'm working out of my office at home, but sometimes I'll let my wife know I'm going to be working over at church today, the building. When I say Jesus was concerned for the church and her preaching and teaching, I don't mean a building. As our text noted, he went to the temple in Jerusalem that day to teach and preach. That was sort of the church building at the time, but it wasn't the the building that concerned Jesus. It was the people who worshipped there. That's what church really means, not a building, but a congregation, a group of people gathered around God's word. That's a church. And more than a church, Jesus is concerned for the church. People might belong to this, that, or another visible church, congregation. For instance, in our second reading from Revelation, we heard a letter dictated by Jesus to one particular church, a congregation in the Greek city of Ephesus. But behind and above every visible church, the, the congregation there in Ephesus, our own, is the invisible church. Everyone who believes in Jesus as their Lord, their Savior, belongs to that church, the invisible church, we can call that. I am a fully convicted Lutheran. That is to say, I am convinced that the Lutheran tradition's theological conclusions properly reflect the Bible's teachings over against other theological traditions, And because I am a fully convinced Lutheran, I'm convinced that Lutherans aren't the only ones who belong to that invisible church. Lutherans have never claimed that. Other groups have claimed and do claim it. You might ask some American evangelicals, and they'll give you the answer that Catholics probably aren't actually Christian, for instance. And for their part, Catholics technically hold that they are the only true church to which believers should belong. Lutherans, in contrast, have always held two assertions in tension. One, the only criteria for belonging to the church, which is of Jesus, the invisible church, that is to say. It's faith in Jesus. It's not denomination. But also, Lutherans have always held that correct teaching is important, and Christians should seek out preachers and teachers and churches, congregations, that teach the Bible rightly. Because while the only thing that brings someone into the invisible church is faith in Jesus, any improper teaching in the church does and can overshadow Jesus. That's what concerned Jesus during these last days before his death. His life, his death, his resurrection had been prophesied for centuries beforehand. In all of it, he was going to fulfill the promises that God had made to Adam 4,000 years before, to Abraham and Jacob 2,000 years before, to David 1,000 years before, promises made to them, promises made through others as well, through Moses and Isaiah and Micah. And only three years prior, these promises have been made once more through the last prophet, whom Jesus mentions in our reading there, John the Baptist. What were all these promises? 
God had promised to and through these various people to send forth a man who would live perfectly and die a horrible death in total innocence. God had promised that this man's death would be a blessing to all people of all time, and God promised that he would not force this death on one of his own creatures. Right? What a monster that would make God to create someone whose only purpose in life was to suffer and die. Instead, God himself would be this suffering man. If you feel that God has it out for you, right, that your only purpose in life is to suffer, I'm sorry. I really am. And I want you to know that's not true. Only one person in history has ever had such a life, the life that you might think that you have. You don't. Only one person ever has a life where your the only purpose was to suffer, and God would not, did not, subject any of his creation to such a thing. Rather, instead, the one who lived that life was Jesus, the Son of God, God from God, light from light, as we'll speak in the creed after today's message. That was God's one chosen suffering servant, and the whole Bible attests to him. He is witnessed to on each and every page. On some, he is prophesied. On others, our need for him is laid bare. Because this is what God intended to work through Christ. This is the blessing which he would be to the whole earth. His death for our sin. His innocence credited to us sinners. That message, that promise of particular blessing of salvation, that's the Bible's message. And we call that message the gospel. The gospel hinges on Jesus. Without Jesus, there is not a gospel, a good news message. And in particular, the gospel hinges on his death and resurrection. Without those events, there is no good news from God for us. There is no promise to which we can cling. There is only the fear of judgment for our sin. If you remove Jesus from Christianity, it becomes nothing more than an ethical system. There are two versions of this. First, there is what I'll call modernist Christianity. This is Christianity without God stepping into our flesh and blood. Christianity sort of reduced to the best way to live. If you hear someone preaching that Easter teaches us to recycle, that's modernist Christianity. If you hear someone preaching a seven-week series on steps to a happier marriage, that's modernist Christianity. I think you should recycle. I think the Bible has powerful things to speak into every marriage. But to make Christianity into that is to remove Jesus. The other ethical system which removes Christ from Christianity is legalism. This is Christianity with God stepping into our world, not to save, but to judge. This kind of Christianity denies Christ's statement about his mission in John 3. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. When you hear someone who can't stop asking, Is this a sin? Is that a sin? You're hearing someone struggling with the legalist ethical system, not Christianity. And when the religious leaders barged up to Jesus in our reading today, badgering him by asking, By what authority are you doing these things? You're hearing the words of people living under legalism. Legalism had totally overshadowed Jesus in the church during his time on earth. The teachers and the preachers proclaimed an ethical system. Do this and thou shalt live. The promised message of a savior coming to give his life as a ransom for his creatures was lost. But the common people, the people in the pews, hungered for that promise message, so they devoured Jesus' preaching, because he brought that promise forth. Where they had been attending church and hearing a steady drumbeat of, Do this and avoid that, Christ came preaching not works, but faith. 
Every congregation which had him as a guest preacher during his ministry was blown away by his focus not on ethical behavior, but on the promises of God regarding the Messiah. They were used to that message being totally overshadowed. Then, the day before what we're reading, on Monday of Holy Week, Jesus had come to the temple in Jerusalem and found that the message was literally overshadowed. The temple's courtyard was entirely filled with vendors, with people hawking animals for sacrifice, with others exchanging money for the particular coins required to pay the temple taxes. This was supposed to be a place testifying to God's promise of ultimate forgiveness through shed blood, and instead it was like scrolling a low-budget news website. Ads everywhere. So Jesus cleared the place out overturned the tables, knocked over the benches, ethically very murky. What ethical system gives a private citizen the right to disrupt others engaged in lawful commerce? And to be clear, during his time on earth, Jesus was a private citizen, not a king, not a law enforcement professional, not the building's landlord. So the very next day, the teachers and the preachers showed up to confront him very reasonably. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus reply. I will also ask you one question. He says, If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? I don't know what to call this answer. Profound isn't the right word. Maybe clever is better. I think the best word might even be something like cheeky. He's almost taunting them. He's thumbing his nose at them in front of the crowds. Neener, neener, you can't get me. But it's not just a a cheeky, clever, non sequitur. He's pointing out something important. They want him to explain the source of his authority, Jesus is telling them, even if I told you, you wouldn't be qualified to judge that answer. If they can't judge for themselves what right preaching and teaching in the church is, if they can't honestly evaluate the ministries of himself or of John the Baptist, then these people have no business questioning him because they ought to know better. They are the teachers and the preachers. They are the ones who should know that he is the central message of their scriptures. They ought to be pointing the people to him, proclaiming and extolling him. Instead, their concern is for their ethical system. So Jesus tells the teachers and the preachers, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Why? Because the teachers and the preachers have completely overlooked what God asks of them. God asks of the teachers and the preachers the same thing he asks of the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Go and work today in the vineyard. And Jesus says that this request, which is offered by the landowner in the story, symbolizes God calling people to repentance through his messengers. The leaders were probably baffled by this assertion that they needed to repent. What could Christ identify in their lives that needed changing that required repentance? They were not like the average tax collector of those days who would tell citizens they owed one amount and tell the Romans that a lesser amount was due and keep the change for themselves. They were not like sexually immoral prostitutes. And to be clear, God did not approve of the activities of either of those groups, not the theft of the one, not the fornication of the other. But the issue, which the teachers and the preachers failed to identify in their own lives, was their failure to proclaim Christ. That was their sin. Expect that your preachers and your teachers reliably and regularly deliver over to you the promises of God regarding your Savior. I am not here to deliver over an ethical system to you. If you consistently hear that from me, vote this way, avoid these things, seven tips for your marriage, recycle, tell me to get back in my Bible. Because I do not need to deliver ethics to you, I need to deliver law and gospel. There is a distinction to be made. 
between ethics and the teaching of the law which I do as a preacher. Ethics can be satisfied. Ethics is the law light. It's an easy law to fulfill. The law which your preacher must deliver over to you needs to crush, needs to kill, needs to tell you that no matter how good you are, it isn't good enough. The law is the proclamation to both prostitutes and preachers that there is no hope for them. That's not ethics. That's overturning tables. Then your preacher needs to proclaim to you the gospel. God's own Son was born into this world to live perfectly in your place and die innocently in your place. His innocence and his perfection are delivered over to you as a gift for you to possess by no merit of your own. How are they delivered over? Through this proclamation. Through this water, through this bread and wine. By these means, God delivers over to you what he has promised, forgiveness and salvation in the righteousness of Jesus. And through these means, God's Holy Spirit comes to dwell in your heart and he takes you beyond ethical systems. Ethical systems can really only answer this question. What should I do? It's a self-focus. But you are turned by God's Spirit outside of yourself to your neighbor, to everyone whom God places before you each and every day. And the question you ask in this new life, which is faith, is no longer what should I do, but what do they need? That's not ethics. That's love. Amen.